In every neighborhood, there is one house that no one will enter. Now, the director of A Nightmare on Elm Street takes you inside. Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs. Rated R. Starts Friday, November 1st. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 13 of Craven Craven, the podcast devoted to all things Wes Craven. I am one of your hosts, Patrick Bromley, joined as always by my Craven Craven co-host, Heather Wixon. Hi, Heather. May they burn in hell, Patrick. May they burn in hell. You were just saying before we started recording, the only thing better than 80s Wes Craven is what? 90s Wes Craven. And now we are into 90s Wes Craven with 1991's The People Under the Stairs. This is very exciting. I I am so excited. Um, we're really getting into like, look, and I, and I love 80s Wes Craven. I love 70s Wes Craven. Um, but like, I really feel like this is like we're getting into like the really fun meat of everything. Because also one is like we did Nightmare on Elm Street. And I'm like, who hasn't talked about Nightmare on Elm Street right. on their podcast? <laughs> you know. What are you going to do? Um, and, you know, so I, I'm just, I'm really excited about all of this. Uh, and I'm, I love that we're doing People Under the Stairs. People Under the Stairs was the first Wes Craven movie I saw theatrically. Was it really? Yeah. Because I guess I would have been too young for the others. Or, I don't know, I went uh, with a date I was dating oh a girl who was a little older, and she could drive. And so she, we used to go to the movies all the time because she could actually drive. And I would often pick the movies, and she would often hate the movies that I picked, including this one. She was not a fan, but I loved it. So wait, and when you were 14, you were pulling tail from somebody who was like a driver? <laughs> I didn't use wow. the expression pulling tail. <laughs> No, no, I did. That's fine. <laughs> I'm, I am impressed. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Patrick, the lady killer. I mean, look at your wife, though. Like, so, oh yeah, well, know, we're, yeah. We're, we're all impressed. But, uh, <laughs> as as wow. we should be. Um, wow. Yeah, but she was not a fan, so she had bad taste in movies. Um, and obviously, you made the right decision by not continuing that relationship. Correct. Now I'm married to somebody who likes the people under the stairs. See, you 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 married up. I you, did. You 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 traded up in, in way the way out here. of my league. Um, all right. So here's the IMDb summary of the people under the stairs, which, by the way, contains spoilers. So if you've never seen the people under the stairs, don't <laughs> listen to this summary. Two adults and a juvenile break into a house occupied by a brother and sister and their stolen children. There, they must fight for their lives. So the, that is pretty spoilery. The reveal that they are brother and sister is given away in the IMDb summary, which is a bummer. I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's something you should, if you've never seen the movie, you really shouldn't have that revealed ahead of time. Hell no. Like the stolen children, okay, fine, whatever, they're weirdos, they're probably doing something bad, so stealing children makes sense, but like... The brother-sister reveal is a pretty big moment in this movie. Yes, it is. So that's that's a little bit of a bummer. Yeah. What are you doing, IMDb? Can we can we change that? Well, and there's other ones I could have read, but they were like really long and involved, and I didn't and that really want to like do the that. Whole episode. Yeah, and they all mentioned brother and sister, by the way. So. You know, it's just funny because you were talking about like your first theatrical Wes Craven, and yeah. I think because. I pretty much, even up until this point, was doing, I, because I was 
13 when this came out and I don't remember I don't remember trying to sneak into this one so I think I think my first theatrical Wes Craven I mean yeah I think that would be Vampire in Brooklyn okay wow that's so sad I saw New Nightmare theatrically but then I skipped Vampire in Brooklyn oh see I didn't see New Nightmare I did try to see New Nightmare in the theaters um, but the, the Oak Brook mall theater, mm-hmm. which is where I regularly went, uh, cause I could ride my bike there. Um, they were really strict about carding. Uh, cause I yes. think that was, uh, I don't remember if that was, <laughs> there was something that came out around that time and they really buckled down on carding. And so it was really hard to sneak in because they would, at, at the R rated theater entrances, they would have people checking the tickets so they were kind of militant. You could yeah. kind of get away with it better at Yorktown. Um, but that was a little further for me because, like, I, I lived, I worked near, like, Oak Brook Terrace and stuff. So I could ride my bike after work and go see movies, like, all the time. Nice. Um, over at the mall there. It was, yeah. like, a 10-minute bike ride, which was amazing. But Yorktown was a little bit of a different story. So, yeah. So I don't think I, I think my first wasn't until Vampire Brooklyn. That's two oh. shows away still. I know. Gives us all something to look forward to. That's right. In the new year. <laughs> yes. We'll get to VIB in 2022. Now we'll just do the TPUTS. <laughs> Is that what we're doing? We're doing acronyms now? I'm pretty sure that's what people call it, like the real fans. T-Putts? T-Putts, yeah. T-Putts. Which is also it's my rap name. everybody. <laughs> but I think that has a Z at the end, right? Yeah, of course. It's a rap name. <laughs> Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, you mentioned that your date didn't appreciate the people under the stairs at the time it came out. Were you uh, initially a big fan of it when you saw it? I was. I mean, I, I've come to appreciate it even more over the years when I have, like, really grabbed hold of how smart it is and how funny it is. I think at the time yeah. I just appreciated that it was, like, kind of crazy and uh, a lot of fun. But the older I get, the more I appreciate how subversive it is and how it kind of stands out from a lot of Wes Craven's filmography as being very, uh, it's unlike a lot of his movies. Sorry, I had to cough there for a second. That's okay. Didn't want to be rude. Um, yeah, it's interesting because like, I remember, I remember renting it, um, and I remember liking it, but I remember, um, as a kid, because I wasn't smart. So (laughs) I'll never pretend to be a smart kid because I think, you know, as you get older, you start to see things a little bit differently and you have a little more of a fuller context and understanding of things. I remember thinking the comedy stuff was really weird to me as a kid. Um, because there's so many elements of this story that are really scary. Um, but now as an adult, because it, it's not like it wasn't like blatant comedy. Like it wasn't like watching right, like, right. you know, like vamp or something like that, where, you know, it's 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 a very, you know, sort of obvious comedy um, where, you know, this is very dark comedy um, at times. And so as an adult, um, the, the comedy has definitely won me over way more than it did when I was a kid. And also I think just a lot of the thematic elements of it and sort of the real life issues, um, because they're things that I 
genuinely care about in real life um, have really sort of stuck with me. Um, it made me realize like, you know, oh, this is, this was a really important film, you know, to come out, especially in 1991. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that, you know, Wes Craven, like a lot of horror filmmakers, like, um, like John Carpenter often was, is just way ahead of the curve here because here we are in 2021 and as income disparity and sort of the, the gap between the 1% and the rest of the country uh, widens as racial tensions deepen. Um, here's a movie that's talking about all of that like 30 years ago, you know, like it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, that Wes Craven yeah. was just way ahead of his time. And and he often was. I mean, that's not anything new for Wes Craven. He was often, like I said, like a lot of horror filmmakers, he was kind of way ahead of the curve. Uh, but this movie has only grown more prescient the more time Ooh. goes by. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Pull, yeah, pulling out the fancy words. That's right. And it's interesting to me because... <laughs> Teapot's doing it. Um, <laughs> well, it's interesting to me because, like, you know, as a kid, I didn't really understand what gentrification was. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting when you look at, you know, people under the stairs in 91 and then Candyman in 92. Um, you had two, you know, pretty and both universal movies, yeah, too, which is yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, talking about these issues that really weren't, you know, it's gentrification now has sort of become a really big subject because it's happening everywhere. Um, I mean, it's like, I moved out here to LA in 2009 and in the neighborhood I was in, it was like, I lived at the border of Silver Lake and Echo Park and Echo Park was a, a was a primarily Latino community when I moved here. Um, and these days now it's, turned into Silver Lake again, which was sort of like hipster heaven, okay. as, as people like to call it. Okay. Um, so now it's like you have a lot of like young white families moving there because they built a bunch of these like condos and townhouses that are like seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars $800,000. And they're pushing people consistently out of their neighborhoods. And, you know, that's it. I don't most people don't really know this, but like in the 2000s, I worked uh, for a PR firm in Chicago that worked with a lot of um, like nonprofit organizations and things of that nature. And one of our clients was a writer who wrote a book about uh, the gentrification of the West side of Chicago. And I'm totally blanking on the name of the book. I actually have it on my bookshelf though, in my office. Um, but it was sort of eye opening to me because I kind of, I remember thinking because I used to take the green line to work every day and I would see what was happening in the Cabrini green area and from the outside looking in, I was like, oh, they're putting in nice housing that isn't these stacked apartment buildings that are just, right. you know, these death traps. I, so in my mind, it was a good thing. And then I realized, <laughs> like, they weren't putting these units into the Cabrini Green neighborhood to help right. the people who already were living there. They were bring, they were hoping to bring in other people to basically push, right. you know, black you know, community members out. And then that's when it like really started to click with me. Um, and it's interesting because again, you're, this is 30 years ago. Um, and like, 
it's it's worse now. It's even worse. Well, we we missed the we were missing the 30th anniversary of this by a few weeks only too, because it came out November 1st, 1991. Oh yeah, you're right. Well, that's good timing on our part. Look at us. It's almost least, like we planned this. At least we got Sorry. it in the same month. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and it's just, but for me, like I. I don't think there was, I mean, there's, I think that's what I loved about like sort of that era, <laughs> that one's for you, of, of horror filmmakers, like the Romeros and the Cravens um, and the Carpenters, because they were, you know, taking on these issues, I think ahead of time, Way like ahead especially of time. Romero, you know, and I like, and I'm not saying that horror these days doesn't address social issues at all, because that is very much not the case, but they're very much about be in the moment right where they're not quite right. looking ahead right um and there's so i mean and we've talked about this before with craven i mean it feels like every movie or at least every couple of movies that he's done it feels like it's a warning call for the future where it's like if you're not careful like this is where we're heading mm-hmm. um and i'm really excited when we get to scream because i've had this long sort of this like forming like thesis in my head about what Craven was really talking about in Scream, um, beyond technology. Okay, that I'm gonna lay out in that episode. Ooh, I'm excited. Um, I mean, I I literally made a note of it in my email um, in February of this year because okay. it kind of just hit me, and I was like, oh, this is. I think this is what he was really, really talking about beyond the technology stuff. So. Um, but yeah, I just think that there's something really interesting about, you know, a movie that you have characters who are watching this, you know, war unfold overseas, which dominated us as a country over here. Um, and it almost feels like a distraction from the things that are going on here. Like, it, you know, it's right. almost like the politics of our of that time were trying to distract us from the things that were really happening hmm. in our own country. Hmm. It's weird, right? Hmm. So strange. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> um, this is a fascinating movie in so many ways. You know, we kind of already touched upon the dark, pitch black, almost red humor, which is a phrase that Mick Garris coined. Um He's so smart. He is, of the movie, but it's also, like, structurally so bizarre. We kind of talked about this with with uh, Shocker, that Shocker has a bizarre act structure. Um, yeah, this, this does not uh, play by the rules. No, not at all, and yet I find it works a lot better here than it did in Shocker. For me as a viewer, I'm not saying that is the case for everybody, but in Shocker, the 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 bizarreness of the act structure really threw me off. And I was like, well, this doesn't, this isn't working for me. Um, whereas in people under the stairs, I mean, it's like we get a very brief first act where they decide to break into the house, an incredibly long second act, uh, and then kind of an abbreviated third act where he goes back into the house. And I know that that's normal that the second act is often the longest, but here it just feels like it's the bulk of the movie is act two. Yeah, it's it kind of feels it, it it's weighted very differently. It, it almost feels like you you end up sort of having like the two endings, 
because you have like, okay, everything kind of gets wrapped up with fool's family, right? Like they're able to pay their rent. They're right. going to take his mom to the hospital. Right. You know, in that way, that story is resolved. Um, but I like that. Like we sort of start this new, like heroic narrative for him where he's like, no, I could just walk away right here, but I have to go back because there are really bad things happening in this house and right. somebody has to do something about it. The evil and, like, still exists. Yeah. And it's like, you have this little kid who has to take this on himself. Like, it's not like his sister's like, Oh, we got to go do this. You know, it's this like 12 year old kid or whatever. who's like, Oh no, I have to go fix these social injustices that are happening, you know, inside this house. Like he could have just walked away. And I think, and you know, I'm, I'm very white, so I, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I do know from friends and from things that I've seen and experienced, you know, that often like, you know, children of color, they, they tend to have to take on a lot of adult responsibilities in a lot of ways because their experiences in society are a lot different than your experiences and my experiences. Sure. Um, so I feel like in a way it was really smart of Wes to be like, you know, look at what we're putting on our kids. Like this shouldn't be the responsibility of this poor child. And thankfully, like we also can sort of get the community, the community kind of steps up at the end to kind of, you know, deal with the, the Robesons and things like that. But like, ultimately, like all of this really hinges on fool going back into that house, that place you don't ever want to go again. Um, and becoming even more heroic. Right. Um, in some pretty profound ways. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, you know, I don't have a ton of experience with Brandon Adams. I didn't really grow up with the Mighty Ducks movies or the Sandlot movie. Um, I know that that's like, those are staples of some people's childhood. And I think it's because I'm just a little bit older. I'm not a 90s kid. Um, I but, saw the first Mighty Ducks movie. Um I've seen you know, them. I was, just didn't, I, you know, I, yeah. I don't have a relationship to them. Yeah. I was a little old for Sandlot, but too. So, yeah. but for some people that's like a, a definitive text, you know, uh, of their childhood, but, uh, he's really good in this movie. He is. And there's a lot that he's like, there's a lot of this movie where he's kind of like carrying it because like you've got characters that either can't talk characters that don't talk a lot. Um, and so he's kind of has to be our shepherd through a lot of this right. as he's going through the house and kind of putting the story together for us. Like, well, why are all these weird kids, you know, boys in the basement and, you know, what's going on with this girl? And like, what are these, what are, you know, mommy and daddy, if you will, doing, you know, in this house <laughs> and like. So he's like very much us, you know, in the fact that like he's the one that has to piece all of this together and kind of make it all work. Um, yeah. Apparently, I, I landed at the truck stop there for a second. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, he's really, really good. I mean, honestly, like I think to me, like I know, and we're gonna we'll talk more about Everett McGill and Wendy Roby in this. Um, I'm sure, but like hmm. for me, I really think the the MVPs for me for this are Brandon and AJ Langer. Because they both add such a touch of empathy to this otherwise really big, broad, sort of like angry story um, that I think that's that they're the reason I care so much about this and that it becomes more than just sort of, 
the dark comedy or the social commentary or even the the Looney Tunes-esque comedy that kind of comes through in, in waves in this movie as well. Right. Because there's parts of this movie that you could like score, you could use parts of like the Looney Tunes score and it would work. You know, God bless <laughs> Everett McGill for like going for it. But like there's some some slapsticky moments. In oh, this. yeah. And you also get some moments with Prince as well that like the the whole sequence where he ends up on the tray and shooting out the cabinet like <laughs> makes me laugh because it's so ridiculous but yet i'm it works right like it shouldn't work but it works you know there's you know brandon adams the the one way at which he's at a disadvantage in this movie is that he's forced to say some fairly clunky dialogue because once again we have and maybe not once again i think this is the first the first best example of wes craven doing this and it will come back to this when we get to like my soul to take but sometimes wes craven has a propensity to write dialogue for characters he doesn't really understand Um, yeah so here he's attempting to write dialogue for like well, this is how people of color talk, right? And sometimes it's like, well, not necessarily. He it's way more offensive uh, in in my soul to take because it's like this is how teenagers talk, and it is not how teenagers talk. But he means well. There's nothing you know racist about it. I'm not accusing Wes Craven of racism, but it is a little bit clunky at times. I you know I really I, I agree there, and I think that it would have been nice to have somebody come in and do some rewrites on the script yeah um with from from a writer who had those perspectives because it is there there is a there's there's moments where it does sort of linger into stereotypical right territory and it's you know in 91 it's it's a little less offensive right but now now we're 30 years later and it's like oh okay <laughs> you know uh all right you know right. um but the thing is, like, I always have to remember is, like, were his intentions good with this? Right. And I think so. Because, I mean, For if you sure. look at, again, when you look at, like, 80s horror, um, you know, because we're coming out of the 80s at this point, um, there wasn't a lot of diversity. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it was pretty much like most movies were 95% white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that always st- stuck out to me as well is that. Wes really, especially in the 90s, like was very, he was very forward thinking in terms of like wanting to be more diverse, I think. And so I have to give him credit for that because like, this is a major studio movie, you know, it wasn't a huge budget, but it was still, you know, a few million dollars. And his lead is a young black kid, Mm -hmm. which if you're looking at like major theatrical movies coming out at that time that really wasn't a thing. Right. You know, I mean, even in something like Candyman, which came out the year later, like, I think top billing was Virginia Madsen. Sure. You know, I mean, these days, I mean, we'd all probably say like, oh, it's Tony Todd. Um, But I think traditionally, like, I think it was like, it was Virginia Madsen. Um, You know, so it's, to me, it feels really special in that way that like, he he wanted to take this risk and it is a risk and it shouldn't be a risk. You know, if there was any justice in the world, it wouldn't have been a risk to do something like that. Um, but unfortunately it was a risk at that time. And, you know, I think, 
you know, ultimately I think his heart was in the right place. And, you know, so it's like, it does bum me out because I wish that stuff was a little more well thought out. Sure. Um, but ultimately I have to remember like, you know, in 1991, like, you know, unfortunately, like how many, you know, black screenwriters were out there working that would have been approached by Universal to begin with. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like it sucks. Well, we get Boys in the Hood this same year, and that's sort of the start of this movement towards more urban films. And New Line in particular would sort of pick up that mantle and run with it in terms of making movies with black casts for black audiences. Uh, And that's another way that I think Wes Craven was ahead of the curve here, that he's making sort of an urban horror film at a time when, you know, there weren't really very many of those. Well, you know, and it's interesting, too, because I was just thinking about this, because for some reason I had in my head that Do the Right Thing was 90, but it was actually 89. 89, yeah. But that, yeah, oh my God, what is going on? But <laughs> that was also distributed by Universal Pictures. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you look at what was going on at the studios, it, looked, it seems like Universal was really trying to get behind more diverse storytelling back mm-hmm. then, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. I didn't yeah. even realize that, to be very honest, until like we literally were like talking about this, and I was like, oh, look at that. They're also the, you know, the studio responsible for the Fast and Furious franchise nowadays, which is the most diverse of all of the big franchises coming out these days. Uh, very true. Um, do, you th- do, you think, do you think The Rock's going to come back? Do you think Vin's... Vin's little brother thing is going to work because I was like his Instagram like, shaming. Oh my god! Like, look, uh, why? Why would you do that? <laughs> like, why would you call him little brother? Because he's already talked about how he doesn't like that. Yeah. And like, and then you do that in here, like, oh man, like I want the Rock back. If it's really going to be the end of this whole thing, like, of course I want the Rock back. Like, I'm me, of course. Um, you know, I'm I'm Camp Dwayne Johnson. Um, more so than Vin Diesel. And, but like using the phrase that he talked about how he found it annoying <laughs> in previous interviews and said he only has one brother uh, and his name is not Vin Diesel. Um, I just feel like that was the wrong way to approach it. And maybe he was feeling, because I know that uh, Vin Diesel just walked Paul Walker's daughter down the aisle for the wedding. So maybe he's been feeling, you know, all sorts of feelings and nostalgia and realizing like we got to do this right. I just don't think it was the right way. <laughs> I'm way more excited that Vin Diesel apparently yesterday teased a new uh, Riddick movie. You know, he was doing that for so long, for so many years, though. So I don't know. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't think I, I loved Riddick. Um, yeah, me too. I absolutely loved it. Um, but I don't know that it did that well, did it? Uh, probably not. I mean, I think it did okay, but I don't think it was like, you know huge huge numbers but again that was also eight years ago so was it I really complete it was because that was uh one of the yeah, first movies that we, i covered for daily dead good lord well it cost 38 million and it made about 100 so it did okay it did okay so you take 20 yeah so i made about 42 after everything was probably said and done i'm so. actually kind of surprised it cost 38 million <laughs> it seems like kind of a cheap movie yeah but they had a lot of visual effects in that movie yeah and I'm sure, uh, you know, director's fees and Vin's producer fees, you know, they add up. Sure, yeah. You know, 
Um, here's something fascinating because you brought up AJ Langer and I just learned about this. I learned it last night. I know what you're going to say. Oh my gosh. I just learned about this, uh, listening to the most recent blank check episode. Cause they were talking about her in terms of escape from LA. Uh, she is, uh, a countess. She is the countess of Devon because she's married to the 19th Earl of Devon, Charles Courtenay, and she is the Countess of Devon. I would not have uh, predicted that when I was watching My So-Called Life. Right? I uh, I just thought that was interesting, like, because I was looking up, because I hadn't really heard anything about her career, like, I think My, my So-Called Life was kind of like the last time I really thought about her, like, you know what I mean? Like, she was sort of in my consciousness yeah and so last night when i was watching this because i actually watched it twice last night because i was like i'm gonna leave it on again watch it again (laughs) um i was like whatever happened to her and i was like oh my god she's royalty now yeah she has like a family crest and shit like that's some classy stuff yeah it's bananas that is that is pretty crazy so and i like that they're they're uh their daughter is uh, is Lady Jocelyn, right? <laughs> oh wow! It's... I guess she has fibromyalgia too, which I didn't realize. Uh, yeah, I just saw that. I did not know. Yeah, that. so yeah. yeah, fascinating though, right? So I guess that's why she's sort of off the grid in Hollywood because she's she's too busy being a hoity-polity over there, right? Good for her though. Absolutely. Like, I wonder, like, because I know she's, like, a Midwest kid. I'm like, I wonder if, like, when she was growing up, she ever realized, like, one day she'd be, like, royalty. Right. Like, how does that work? <laughs> I don't know. I don't so, know. I was, yeah. I was very I to- surprised to see that. I totally forgot that she was in Escape from L.A., though, because I haven't watched it forever. Um, but when I was looking last night, I did remember uh, that she was in Meet the Deedles. Which I've never seen. Is- I know Paul Walker is in that one. Yeah, it's it's pretty terrible, but okay. it's one of these movies. I remember, like, when Brian and I first started dating, he was like, have you ever seen Meet the Deedles? And I was like, no. <laughs> he was like, we're going to watch it, because he has a DVD of it Okay, um, that he got, like, somewhere over the years. And it's, it's something. <laughs> it's a movie. Sure. It is a movie. So I do remember when she was on uh, 90210, though. Who was she on 90210? She just was on one episode. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it was, um, it was like the, uh, oh my God, I'm trying to, I'm trying to piece it together. Um, it was. BH Niner, she played the, Denise on the episode Radar Love. Yeah, it's the episode when like, uh, Brandon goes looking for, um, Emily Valentine Star of Chucky. Yes. So happy to see her back. Bringing it all Um, together. Yeah. And uh, so I think she's like the friend of hers. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to remember exactly. I think she's Emily Valentine's friend. Okay. And Emily's getting ready to like go out of the country and stuff, but she doesn't want to tell Brandon. Mm. I was never a big Emily Valentine guy. I like Christina you know, Lee. It's nothing against Christina Lee, but I was just never a big. Uh, you should go back and rewatch head. those. Ep- you should go back and rewatch those episodes because I feel really bad for her now. Really, 
Like as a as a teenager, like she freaked me out. You know what I mean? Because I was like, again, it's like back then people didn't talk a lot about mental health and things like that. Um, so I always just always sided with like the Brandon Brenda people. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. And now as an adult, and now that we've talked about these things, that we can sort of you know have open dialogues about them. Um, I, I'm much more on the side of Emily Valentine, to be really honest. All right. Yeah. So they could have all been a little more understanding of Emily, although she did ruin the float. <laughs> I kind of remember that. <laughs> <laughs> what a show. What a show. What I didn't even realize that she, she did all of this. Uh, I didn't realize she was on the Drew Carey show either. I didn't look that far down. I just remembered as soon as I got to uh meet the deedles on the page and i was like oh yeah yeah and i, I was told brian i was like remember meet the deedles and he's like yes <laughs> so he's like we brought we watched that at your place i was like i know so that was like a little fun journey for us but um yeah I, it's i i only watched my so-called life here and there to be really honest okay i i was a weird kid who didn't really watch it as much as i probably should have um, but I was more just, you know, at that point in my life, that was like right around the same time that like X-Files started. Ah, uh, yes. And that's kind of where I was. Like I wasn't about, like I was still doing 90210 and like I think Melrose Place. I wasn't into like the more like emo teen dra- melodrama. Sure. I was in the more polished teen melodrama <laughs> and early 20s melodrama. Um so I watched like a few episodes here and there. I've always wanted to go back and rewatch it just because I probably missed some good stuff, but you know, it's good. And it's, you know, easily watchable. Cause there's just the one season. Um, I used to MTV used to like marathon it all the time. So I've seen way too much of it. Cause I would just put on the marathon and leave it. And now we own the, you know, the series on DVD or whatever. And I've only watched it once uh, on DVD. But uh, AJ Langer was really good on the show. She played that the role of kind of the the fuck up best friend really really well. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I used to get sucked into the Night Two and O early morning marathons on FX. Oh sure. Uh what such such good days were those. <laughs> but I but I do I really like um, her performance in this movie because again it's one of those where you know she's acting against two actors that are sort of very much over the top. You are know, they though? Wendy, I... <laughs> I mean, you know, who amongst us hasn't dressed up in leather gear and run around our house shooting off shotguns into the wall? Who, 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 who of us hasn't? The reveal of his, the, <laughs> the reveal of his gimp outfit will never not make me laugh. Like there's, I, I have to feel like this movie Quentin Tarantino saw this movie in the 90s and was like, decided he needed a gimp for Pulp Fiction and he (laughs) needed Ving Rhames. I really, I really believe that in my You might be right. Yeah. I, that is one thing I've always wanted to ask. Not that I would ever have the cojones to talk to Quentin Tarantino, but I feel like there's just no way, right? Just ask him if he wants to direct a superhero movie. Oh my God, can we just stop asking people about that? <laughs> Who the fuck cares? I don't care. I don't. Like, I just literally saw today somebody asked Pedro Aldemar. Like, who yeah. cares? And Jane Campion. 
Oh, I'm like, no. Yeah. Did they really? Yeah. No, they didn't. Uh, not necessarily oh. if she would direct one, but just like, what do you think of superhero movies? And she said she Who hates cares? them, not surprisingly. Yeah. Oh, my God. Why don't you ask her about, like, all these other movies? Like, right. oh, my God. Like, I understand you need the clickbait. Like, I get it. But, like, ultimately, like, who the frick cares? I don't yeah. care. I'm so tired of the same conversation. Yeah. Like, I, I get that comic book sites need their hits, but, like, there's got to be a better way to do it at this point, right? I don't think... And these are the people who get to access to all these junkets. And right, the rest of that's, us don't. that's the crazy part, is that somebody gets a chance to interview Jane Campion, and that's what they waste their time with. And the people Jesus who are going Christ. to, like, you know, comicbookmovie.com or whatever these sites are, uh, they don't know who Jane Campion is. Yeah. So I mean, maybe that's not really a clickbait article. Lining, yeah, I mean, it's like if, even if there's like a, the one silver lining that might be here is that maybe somebody will be like, "Who's Jane Campion?" and like <laughs> oh, go sure. and like wh- they're gonna turn I, off Thor knows? the Dark World and put on the piano. I like how you picked Thor the Dark World though. Like you could have <laughs> picked any other movie, but no, you had to pick on Thor the Dark World. Which, that's right. No, it's not very good, but it's not. Um, I mean, I'm not turning Thor off Thor Ragnarok for the piano. Sure. That's for sure. sure. No. Sorry. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> I'm a simple gal. What can I say? <laughs> but, you know, I, but I really, I, there's just, there's so much that you just feel for her. And there's this scene when she talks, when she's first sort of talking with Fool, you know, and she's talking about sort of the rules of her life. And there's like that tear that just comes down. Yeah. And it's just kind of wavering in her eye for like 30 seconds before it comes down, which like that tear did some acting. <laughs> um, but that scene is so good because at that moment, like, yeah, we're, we're watching this sort of weirdly bizarre pitch black horror comedy, but there's like real emotional stakes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because yeah, like, okay, these people are crazy and we want, you know, them to get defeated. But like, there's a girl here who has been through some serious stuff. Yeah. And, you know, her whole life is a lie. And she's being kept from the outside world. You know, she's abused, like, just every day, like, verbally, physically, emotionally, you know. And it's it's really sad, um, you know. And it's also kind of nice because, like... You know, we always talk about in horror, you know, especially since horror noir came out and, and really shone a light on it. Um, and it's something I've been more conscientious about is sort of, you know, the the white savior complex that comes into horror a lot. Um, I like that this is sort of the reverse of that. Right. Right. Where, you know, it's, you know, it's Brandon Adams having to come in and be the hero for her. Because she has zero agency in this. Right, right. You know, which is very, again, very interesting and very different. Right. Than we, we, especially, you know, through 80s horror. So I really think it sort of sets a tone in terms of what maybe 90s horror was about. It wasn't about playing by those same rules that we've been playing with for the previous decade. Yeah. If that makes any kind of sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know the 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 relationship between her and her parents too is Wes Craven once again, sort of underscoring this divide between young people and adults that he's been talking about since you know a Nightmare on Elm Street possibly before, 
Um, here, the divide is obviously much greater because they're literal abusive monsters, you know, uh, brother and sister lying about being her parents. And there's all this other stuff. But um, I just was thinking about, uh, you know, it's young people who once again have to inherit the earth and save the day. We do get some positive adult portrayals. We get Bill Cobb. Uh, in particular, as sort of a more positive adult force in the movie. But there's that through line of sort of young people having to be the ones to expose the truth, uh, the lies that adults put forth, and um, and kind of save the day that I think is interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, again, if you're, if you're making this sort of overall thesis about movies that were where Wes Craven is basically... Featuring kids calling adults out on their bullshit right. of, of their adult world. Right. Um, this is definitely a big part of that as well. Um, just in a very different way, you know, than say like Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Um, or even Scream. You know, but yeah. So it's it's really interesting in that respect too, because like, um, you know, again, you have this kid who, I mean, like the things that he has to go through, through that huge, like 50, like 50 minute second act. Because <laughs> it really, it's just it's like I, I, I want to say it's at least forty-five minutes of that movie. It is, yeah, it's um, really long. And he has to will, willingly choose to go back. Like in that moment, he's like, he's like Nancy, like where Nancy's like, okay, this guy has killed all of my friends. The only choice I have is I have to go get him and I have to kill him. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's a much different context, and you know, these are real world you know, bad people versus dream bad people. Um, but it's, it's still very much in that same through line, which again, I'm, you know, just knowing where Wes was at his life, like, you know, you have to wonder like if this was still him sort of working out, you know, the lingering effects of his divorce and his relationship with his kids at the time and realizing like how much they had to grow up, yeah, you know, in the wake of, you know, their parents splitting up and things like that. Right. Um, but yeah, like it's, yeah, this, this movie really lives and dies by Brandon Adams. And this kid was way more than up to the, up to the task, which again, when you look at like the, the, the people he's going like sharing scenes with, you know, in terms of the adults, like you have Ving Rhames, who again, he's, he's still early in his career at this point. Um, but he still has that gravitas. Like the scene when he's first talking at the, in the apartment at, with Ruby or when Ruby's there and, and, you know, and fools sort of challenges his ideals. Like, and he's like, you know, you better listen up. Like, this is how it really is, you know, for our community. Like, right, right. You, you either, you either step up or you, you know, you're, you're basically just going to be another statistic. Um, you know, boy, that's like, that's like, quintessential Ving Rhames right there. <laughs> like, that's the guy when he, like, walks through the scene in, in Pulp Fiction and he just looks at Bruce Willis and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> he has his donuts and I'm like, yeah. Um, so you could see, like, those inklings of what was to come from him as a performer. Yeah. Um, but he has such a weight even to the, the minimum, you know, because he's not in it a ton. Um, but the scenes that he does have, there is a weight to that. Yeah. Um, you know, but I like, I mean, we have to talk about Everett McGill and Wendy Roby in this because, you know, Everett McGill's 
basically was like a version of childhood trauma for me because he scared the shit out of me with silver bullets. <laughs> like, and I never thought I'd see anything scarier than Everett McGill as a werewolf. And then I saw people under the stairs. Did he scare you in this and, movie when you saw it? Yeah, I think he did. I think, did he? Well, I think, I think just because of things that I dealt with, like in my own life, mm-hmm. I think there was just something really intimidating about him. Like there's, you know, as an adult now, there's, there's a, I, the humor of his character really pops more. Yeah. Um, but there's just like, you know, the scene when like, um, Alice, she drops her, you know, uh, Roach had had her fork. Yeah. And, um, uh, basically Wendy says to him like, you know, don't bruise her face. And he takes his belt off. I think because, uh, my mom was somebody who used a belt for punishments. Like, I think that I just associated like that fear that I had sure. from my own life with that. Oh my gosh. And I'm not going to get like it. Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's fine. I mean, you know, it's not fine. It's not fine. <laughs> I've dealt with it. Um, I will tell you, cause like my mom had this belt and that was like the punishment belt. And she kept it in the, the coffee table. And I remember she'd always make me go get it too, which was always the worst part. Like, not only am I like, am I getting punished, but like I have to go get it. And I remember one of the first times um, when I stayed home by myself, <laughs> one of the first things I did was I took the belt and I threw it away. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, I, and then, and then, oops, she couldn't find it the next time. So she had to use it. And it was like this white leather belt and it had like little studs on it. It was. Jesus. Yeah. It wasn't good. You know, it's no wonder I have mommy issues, I guess. Um, you know, but what are you going to do? You know, I mean, I'm, I've, I've, I've come through it. It's fine. Um, I mean, it, it made me realize like I would never do that to my kids. Like, cause what the hell is it even doing? Um, you know, so anyway, um, not to, not to bring everything down, but yeah, there was just like some real world aspects to his character in particular that really scared the shit out of me. Um, that was just a little too relatable in certain ways where I was just like, Oh my God. And he's like, yeah, like I get it. Like now it's like, it's funny to see him running around in that suit, but like 13, not really knowing what that suit represented, right. you know, fully right. Right. like it wasn't funny. It was scary. As shit. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, I wasn't into like gimp, uh, you know, gimp lifestyles, if you will. Not until you were like 15. Right. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it was probably around like uh, Pulp Fiction. I think was like when I was like, "Wait, this is like a thing." Right. Thing? Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Because <laughs> it was like the first movie that sort of used it within the context of how pe- some people actually use it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Where it wasn't just like a visual thing; like it was like it had like a storytelling purpose. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So it was kind of strange in that way. Yeah, I the the abuse in the movie is real and horrifying because I think about the scene where Wendy Roby puts her in the bath and AJ Langer's oh, reaction God. is so genuine and believable and horrifying. And I give Wes Craven a ton of credit for that because so much of the movie is cartoonishly over the top and so much of their villainy is so sort of silly. Um, 
But when it comes to the realities of being their daughter and being abused by them, uh, he doesn't play it for laughs. He doesn't make it over the top or silly. It's very sort of grounded and real. And I can understand why that would be triggering for you. I'm so sorry that happened. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's all good. Uh, not all good, but you know what I mean. Like, it's I've dealt with it. But I think what I, I, I will say is um, people didn't really talk about child abuse back then. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't, like, sometimes you would have, like, TV dramas that were about it um, to right, a degree. Right, like, right, I right. remember, did you ever, did you ever see the, the TV movie Small Sacrifices? Uh, No. Okay, that was one that really messed me up because my mom like loved all those sort of like real life crime, like TV movies, um, and that was with, I believe with Farrah Fawcett, and it's like the woman who basically shoots her three kids. Oh my! In the car, but I think like Gosh. two of them actually live through it, and then they have to <sighs> testify against their mom, and um, so like that movie scared the crap out of me as a kid, um, also because one of the things that they use in that movie is they use the song hungry like a wolf is playing when she does it. Ugh. And I remember like being a little kid and like the first time hearing hungry, like the wolf on it on in the car. And I was like, Oh my God. Like, <laughs> oh, me the frick out. Yeah. I was like, Oh no, this is it. <laughs> oh, um, God. yeah. You know, um, we're having a big therapeutic session, I think here today. Yeah. Um, but like there wasn't, it wasn't, people weren't ready to acknowledge that that kind of horror existed in our society. Like if somebody hit their kids at a grocery store, you just kind of look the other way. Right. 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 Where these days, if you saw it, like you would call somebody about that, you know, like you would call the police or somebody like if, you know, you know, it's kind of the thing. If you see something, you know, say something. Right. Um, And that wasn't the case when we were kids. Like it was just sort of like this, quiet thing that people just never is other people's business you don't do you know you don't get yourself mixed up in it um and it was interesting because even if you go back to something like maniac which was in 1980-81 um that was one of the big things that um joe spinell wanted to talk about was child abuse because nobody was addressing it at the Mm -hmm. time and his character was very much a product of very you know horrible child abuse right and you know which you can see like on his body the scars and things like that um and that doesn't make what his character does anymore right in that movie but you understand that where he's at now is because of the abuse that he has suffered at the hands of you know at the hands of his mom and you know so i think the 90s is where we really started to open up a little bit more to talk about it Mm -hmm. um and these days like nobody will tolerate shit which is great um, but even like in the early nineties, like people were still hitting their kids, you know, it wasn't a taboo like it is now. Mm. Um, but I think that, you know, I think that's also speaks to our generation where a lot of us were still grow- like sort of the last generation that was dealt with in that manner. Right. And we made a conscientious choice to do, to not do that. Right. You know, and I, you know, I don't know a single person like who's really you know, dealt with their kids in that manner, which is amazing. You know what I mean? Because like when I was a kid, like I was getting spanked. I had bunches, you know, different friends who were getting spanked by their parents. Like I don't know many kids who weren't, you know, at least of of my friend group, you know? So 
it's it it's one of those things where like I think I really appreciate the fact that, you know, again, it's one of these things where like, you know, Wes has created this really wild and vivid and sometimes zany over the top, you know, really you know mean type of like horror comedy, but like ultimately like he's taking on some really heavy things in this movie. Yeah. But he does it in a way where it's not it doesn't hold down the energy of the rest of the story where it's like, yeah, it's, definitely it's need not to be talking about these things. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that he's able to balance all these things and establish a consistent tone because the way that we're talking about it, you would swear that you would get whiplash watching this movie, but you never do. <laughs> um, no. And it, and I think it also speaks to like somebody who, who is willing to abuse the resources of a community is probably a pretty terrible person at home too. Right. You know what I mean? Like they're they're not just if somebody's a you know acting out in one way towards a certain section of society, chances are they are acting out in other ways in other facets of their life. Right. You know, and I think that's very evident um, with you know both Everett McGill and Wendy Roby's characters here. Well, and I've heard, but it... I still love them. Like is 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 terrible as they are. Like I still kind of have this weird affection for them well because they're so much Maybe fun if... to watch because they're just oh. so nuts and over the top and uh, i've they're heard so it good together well yeah and, you and know. i know that and i know that comes from twin peaks and stuff but like right. they're just like why we just didn't have like build movies around them together like <laughs> i you know i could have watched it should have been the hepburn and tracy of horror they really sh- oh my god i love that <laughs> i love that um, I've heard it theorized, and I have put forth the theory that, you know, a lot of this movie is sort of making fun of Ronald and Nancy Reagan. Uh, that's where the whole mommy and daddy thing comes from, because those were their, like, pet names for each other. And, oh, uh, for sure. And they were all about trying to make the the, the traditional American family work, family right? Values, that was family values. Right. Yep. And, uh, and hoarding all of the wealth you know for the wealthy and letting everybody else suffer and basically fight over scraps you know and so uh i think this movie is also a really sharp and clever takedown of sort of where ronald reagan's america left us in 1991 and i mean and that's one of those things like you know everybody talks about like the the reaganomics effects of uh, on the 80s and stuff like that but like we're still dealing with the effects of Reaganomics 40 yeah. years later. But there's still people who believe like, that it works. <laughs> like there's still people yeah. that. Well, those are the people who have like seven, like seven digits in their bank accounts. Right. <laughs> Where I'm lucky with on the days that I have three, you know, right. it's like, I'm like, Ooh, look, this is, this is a good day. I have four digits now. Um, but these you know, are the same so... fucking assholes who think like littering creates jobs, you know, because somebody has to yeah. pick up their garbage. <laughs> Yeah, um, which, you know, again, just proves just how disconnected certain people are from what actually it takes to make society work and what real infrastructure is and things like that. But yeah, it's and it's one of those things like I being like a kid in the 90s, like I I didn't really understand what was happening with like the Gulf War at the time. Yeah, like because of the way that it was like sort of framed in the media and things like that like i thought it was a good thing right 
Like, there's something evil happening over there, and we have to fix it, right? Yeah, we were kids. Um, I mean... You know, and it was like, of course, like, the jingoism kind of came in at that time, too, really heavily. Um, where, like, you know, America, America, and, you know, and we're going to go solve all the world's problems. Right. And, you know, in a lot of cases, we just usually make them worse. And so I think it's really fascinating, again, because I mentioned the thing, but, like, I always forget about that little bit where they're they're watching the TV with those real life, like, you know, footage from the war because I remember that. I remember that summer mm-hmm. of it happening mm-hmm. and sitting because I was babysitting and every morning I had to be over at my the place I was babysitting, which was like the trailer next door to mine, so it wasn't far or anything. But I remember getting there and like the seven a.m. news would be on and it was just constant, you know. Gulf War this, Gulf War that, and all this footage and things like that. And, but again, as a kid, you just, I didn't know how to process that. I just thought we were doing, you know, America coming to save the day. Yeah. You know, and now you have a little bit of context and distance and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and again, it's not a knock to the military or anything like that because I, you know, I don't want to sound like that because, no. Um, you know, but I think there was just some higher ups in our country that were just, fulfilling an agenda that didn't need to be fulfilled. Sure. You know, and a lot of people died because of it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Cause I, I guess it's one of those things like nostalgia is a hell of a drug, right? Like we look back on these things and we're like, Oh, the eighties were the best or the nineties were the best, but like none of it's really the best. You know, I think it's just, we, we yearn for these times because they, they, they seem simpler but they're not really like, you know, it's like one of these things like I'm like, oh, you know, the 80s were so awesome. But it was also the same time period where like my mom had to work three jobs. Right. And it was and it wasn't because like we had like a huge amount of money for our house, like our the rent for us to like live in our trailer park was two hundred and fifty dollars a month. So like how on earth does like she have to work three jobs? Yeah. Like how messed up is the pay? Yeah. You know? Um, so it's, you know, I, I always try to be really like, look, we're all, we're all going to give in to nostalgia. It's, it's like, that's human nature, but I've had to become very realistic about my nostalgia over the years in terms of what am I, re- what is it that I'm really missing? What is it, you know, right. and most of the times it's just movies because I'm like, I'm not really looking back on the time where like I had to sleep at babysitters for nine months and saw my mom two days a week because that that wasn't a fun time as a kid right um but you know I do think about all the sleepovers I got to have and all the fun movies I got to watch and uh the endless you know bounty of fish sticks that came my way because <laughs> <laughs> man fish sticks were so good in the 80s they um, really were I don't know why no they, they really, really were. were yeah I wouldn't touch a fish stick to save my life now but like back then, <laughs> man um so yeah I, it's one of those like you know everybody's like oh no, nostalgia is dangerous and it, it, it can be to a degree but I think if you come at it with a certain understanding of what it is you're really missing like am i really missing you know the the harder you know am i missing all the socioeconomic things or what am i missing like just sitting on my you know on my car with my boombox you know watching my friends play baseball and i'm listening to lost boys like right you know right um you know so it's just i i think it's really fascinating to kind of go back and think about like 
somebody taking a mainstream studio movie and they're like, we're going to take, you know, and it's not like horror wasn't taking on issues before this. Sure. Um, but it feels really bold and pointed here in a way that I really hadn't seen since they live. Yeah. I think that's a, a really good point. Like it was almost like Wes Craven was like, good on you carpenter for yeah. taking on consumerism and Reaganomics in your own way. Like now we're going to talk, you know, we're going to take this and go even further Yeah, and kind of deconstruct some of these other like social issues that are tied into that, you know, because consumerism and capitalism and things like that, you know, greed was good in the eighties. Right. Well, what did that mean for us going into a new decade? Right. You know, yeah. especially when we were in a recession. So, although I do want a money room, can I just say, like, if I ever do get rich, <laughs> I'm totally going to create a money room that I could just roll around with gold like coins Scrooge and Like Scrooge McDuck style, dollars. where you could, like, dive yeah. into it? Yeah. Yeah. I really, like, if I ever get that ridiculously wealthy, like, obviously, I'm going to take care of everybody, mm-hmm. you know, and, and everything. But, like, I, I, I kind of want a Scrooge McDuck room. Like, yeah. even if I have to fill it with quarters, I don't care. <laughs> just, you know. I just want to have that one moment of being like, oh, look at my money room. Yeah. Just swim around in it just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was definitely uh, our our most revealing and upbeat episode of Craven Craven. Yeah, I had to like bring it down like Debbie Downer over Didn't here. Didn't get heavy at all here. Oof. No, 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 not at all. So, <laughs> but here's the thing though, like again, it's it's one of these things like when we talk about like horror these days, like there's there's definitely, you know, especially because, and this is something we talked about years ago where I mentioned how horror was headed in this very much more introspective route, um, which I think we've seen play out over the last few years. And I think it's going to play out even more so now that we're coming out of the pandemic and we're all super messed up from that, um, even yeah. if we don't want to admit it. Um, like, I still don't understand how to, like, function in society. Like, I'm still super awkward. I don't understand. Like, it's like my brain isn't, like, firing in certain ways. I don't even know how to explain it. But, like, I've had to go out and do things and, like, go to screenings and stuff. And I still, like, get panicked. Like, that I'm doing something wrong and it's, like, weird or whatever. But, um, you know, I what I will say is, like, you know, as much as it's introspective now, like, there's only so much to dig into because it's, you know, as much as I love hereditary, it's not taking on right, right, right. huge real world issues right. the way, you know, other movies that we've, you know, discussed, especially on Craven Craven have done so in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, but then of course, if like, as soon as you do, then now you made a woke horror movie and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so you can't win for losing, I think is the, the lesson here. Good. These days. Yeah. Well, that's a happy takeaway, too. It's all good. All sunshines and puppy dogs over here today. <laughs> um, well, we will be back next month with New Nightmare, which I'm excited to talk about. I I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you how excited I am. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm giddy. Right, I'm totally right. giddy. Yes. Awesome. I'm 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 so giddy. I love New Nightmare. It rules. So yeah, it so rules. Um, but yeah, sorry to be like such a downer on this one. No, not at all. You weren't a downer. I appreciate everything you talked about. 
I tried. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, I appreciate it. Um, thank you guys very much for listening. Make sure you follow us at Craven Craven Pod. And uh, thank you, Heather. Thank you, Patrick. And for those listening, we're working on our Pinker the Stinker shirts. So don't <laughs> give up on us yet. Hopefully by before Christmas. They make you a great gift. You can have your own yeah, your own Pinker the Stinker. But in the meantime, you can still get an Abe Snake. Somebody got a really fun sweatshirt of it in the last few weeks. And I don't know if you're listening out there, but if you're the person who got the Abe Snake sweatshirt, please find me on Twitter because I would love to know how that looks. Nice. All right. I'm awesome. curious. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you guys again for listening, and we will talk to you next month. <laughs>